Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, is the sound loud enough for you? It doesn't look like there's any actual sound system that works, so does this work for you? Yeah. All right, sweet. Well, once I get going, I'll actually probably even be louder because I start preaching about social science. Um, it's so good to see you all. Um, I'm David Kinneman, and um, I run a company called Barna Group. It's a research company that's based uh, in Southern California the Los Angeles area. Uh, we also have uh, offices in uh, Atlanta and Nashville, and we've got a person that works for, with us in London. Uh, we're small but mighty. We're about 18 full-time. Uh, if you feel like you want to sit up a little closer, that's totally fine. If it's a little bit less loud in the back, but otherwise you're totally cool where you are. Uh, what do you guys enjoy about Jubilee? How many of this, for you, is this the first time you've been at Jubilee? Oh, awesome. That's cool. I love this conference. It's one of my favorite things to come visit. Um, I just love uh, getting to meet students and seeing some of the things you guys are thinking about and interested in. I love the bookstore. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to come check out. I always spend way too much money at the bookstore. Uh, but what are you guys liking? What do you guys like so far? What are you guys thinking about it? I see some nodding heads. <laughs> Not sure what that means. I'm going to teach you about how to ask a good question, and probably that was a bad question. What do you guys, what do you guys, like, what do you guys like about Andy last night? His singing. His singing. That was cool, huh? That was like performance art, wasn't it? So amazing. I love it when he does that little piano piece at the end. He did that a couple of years ago, and I was so hoping he was going to repeat it. And uh-huh. It's just amazing the way he puts that together. With the, I don't know that much about music, but uh-huh. it, just, uh, it, it just is really Was it the one where he's playing the Bach piece, yes, or, yes, or, yes. or the one where he's, he's singing us through the, the different... The piece. Yeah. yeah. It was cool having him like narrate that stuff. It's like, I really want... like. Him to, I want to go to the symphony and then have like a little earpiece with Andy Crouch giving me like analysis of what's happening because I'm like, wow, that sounds cool. And then he's like, yeah, it's the minor third. And you know, it's really interesting. He's such a cool guy. <clears throat> um, he's been such a good friend for me um, through the through the years, and um, he's become a real good friend with my oldest daughter, um, who's who's 20. She's a she's a junior at Berkeley, um, and so it's been really cool to see Andy. Um, Andy and Catherine like just take take <clears throat> my daughter Emily under their wing. So um, he's been a great friend. Um, <clears throat> what else, you guys? Welcome, guys. Uh, what else, you guys like so far about Jubilee? Pretty excited about the worship. Say it again. I'm excited for the food trucks. <laughs> food trucks. All right, cool. A man who's honest. I appreciate it. Uh, well, let's dive in. Um, we, I have, I don't know, 700 slides to show you, something like that. Um, so we're going to have to go quick. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it only feel, it will only feel like 700 when we're done. <laughs> um, so a little bit about my, my background and history. Um, how many of you have no idea what Barna Group is? Okay, sweet. So Barna is a company that's based in, as I said, in, in L.A. Um, we were started in 1984 by a, by a gentleman by the name of George Barna. And uh, he started as a market research company to try to understand the intersection of faith and culture. And so I started working there in 1995. Uh, I was uh, an intern, and I didn't expect to be at this company for 25 years, but I ended up buying the company from him in 2009. And so I've been here for 25 years. Uh, I don't know anything else than doing this kind of work. I approach it a little bit as like a pastor. So my dad's a lifelong pastor of a church in Phoenix, Arizona, and I actually expected that I would do pastoral work. 
And so I'm sort of a researcher with a pastor's heart, um, and I think that's something we want to sort of talk about. It's like, I think we can be multidimensional people in the work that we do, right? You could be doing social research but have a pastor's heart or, you know, a communicator's gift or whatever. So thinking a little about the multidimensionality of what it is that we do is part of what I want to convey to you guys today. It's like how you build skills that layer upon layer what you can do for, for the kingdom. Um, <clears throat> so Barna Group, as I said, is based in California. We have some offices in Atlanta and Nashville. Um, and we do all sorts of, I think, interesting things. I'm going to show you some stuff that we've been working on for um, uh, interviewing millennials and Gen Z around the world. We did a big study. I'm going to show you a few slides of that kind of as a case study. Um, <clears throat> but, but our work, we, we do mostly work with Christian organizations, um, trying to help people understand their donors or, or people they're trying to reach. But we've also done work for um, uh, studios in L.A., uh, DreamWorks, um, Sony, uh, Paramount, uh, Universal Music Group, uh, because people are always trying to understand, like, who are these Christians out there? We don't get them, so we want to try to figure out how to market more effectively to them. And so market research is part of what we do for, for those groups as well. We've done stuff for the Gates Foundation and the One Campaign, um, you know, the U.S. Armed Forces. We've done a lot of different things because a faith is, can be really confusing for people. So how do you get dimension about it? How do you think about it beyond just you know, your next door neighbor who's a crazy evangelical or this person who you might know or how they're portrayed in media. Uh, so that's what we try to do is use the research to, to convey some of that. All right, so I want to talk about faith, vocation, and social science. I'm going to try to leave as much time as possible for questions. And if you have something that you want to ask while I'm going, just, just feel free um, just to interrupt me and ask a question. Um, what, are the, what are some of the, your, um, your majors? Let's, I'd love to know some of the things you guys are studying right now. Okay. Advertising, cool. History. History, social work. Anthropology. Okay. What else? Marketing. Marketing. Global development. development. What else? Sociology. Sociology, sweet. Sports management. Sports management, all right. What else? Say it again. Social studies education. Okay, sweet, interesting. My my brother is here, my brother-in-law is here with me, and he uh, he, uh, is a, a history teacher in Denver, and, uh, yeah, we have lots of fun and conversations. So what else? Speech pathology. Speech pathology, all right. Anything else hasn't been mentioned? What's your major, man? Economics and Okay, all right, sweet. I was a psych major. Had no idea what I was going to do with that. How many of you feel like that right now? You have no idea what you're going to do with your, with your degree. So um, I was one of the rare birds in psychology that actually liked the statistics courses, um, and a lot of the people that are in psychology are interested in clinical work and all that, and that's cool. Uh, but for me, I was like, wow, I really like group psychology, the social, the sort of the social side of, of, of research, uh, and statistics was sort of like my love language. So I, that's where I ended up getting, I read one of the books by the founder of this company called George Barna, and I thought, man, this is amazing. I could pursue ministry and be a geek. And so uh, it worked out. All right, so faith, vocation, and the, and the social sciences. We want to talk about theological considerations, practical considerations, and then what does that mean for you, the personal considerations. Those are the three things we want to talk about. So theological considerations. First, um, I think it's fun to be a researcher because using what we can learn from Scripture, there's all sorts of ways that there are sort of insights about how I think God thinks about sort of this, this skill set of research and, and, and sort of sort of getting outside of ourselves. This is one of the things I really want to convey to you all today, which is that I love being a researcher because it gives us a chance to hear someone else's thoughts. 
Like, how amazing is it that, you know, in, in creation, we heard about creation last night, we heard about the fall this morning. As, as created beings, we have the ability to perceive someone else's thoughts. We, have a, a, we, we think about our thinking, which is an amazing f- a fact of creation, but we can actually try to perceive someone else's viewpoint. And it's actually really, really hard to see through someone else's eyes, isn't it? And, um, you know, that's, that's actually the core of what I do as a researcher is, is like, hello, meet these people that you think you understand. And a lot of my writing through the last, so I've written four books, a book called Unchristian, a book called You Lost Me, uh, a book called Good Faith, and a book called Faith for Exiles. And almost all of those books are the, the, the ones that are about millennials and Gen Z, that's you, Lo- you Lost Me, Unchristian, and Faith for Exiles. It's really about trying to introduce older church leaders and parents and the older generations to the, what's going on in the minds of young people today. So the book Unchristian, uh, which came out about 12 years ago, um, it was all about the negative perceptions that young non-Christians have of the church that were hypocritical and judgmental and, and anti-homosexual. And so by interviewing non-Christians about their perceptions of Christian, present-day Christianity, we got a sense of like, wow, these are huge barriers. And why it's so hard to be a, a, a young Christian today is that actually there's a lot of evidence that shows that if you were a baby boomer, the non-Christians of the baby boom generation weren't as far apart from, from their Christian peers. And yet for, for you all, you know, millennials and Gen Z, and listen, I, some, like the whole generation, like we don't want to just like label a whole generation, you know, like I know we don't, you might bristle a little bit like, well, don't call me millennial. Don't call me Gen Z. It's just a tool. Like I, I sort of get, I'm a, I'm a generational researcher and I get a little nauseated at all the generational theory and all that. Uh, but it's just a tool to help understand like what's different about people your age, my age, my parents' age. And so UnChristian was a, a tool to sort of say, here's what's different about the people who you are trying to communicate with and bring the gospel into their lives. The book You Lost Me was a book about the two out of three young people who grow up Christian, but who end up losing their faith or walking away from the church. How many of you know anybody uh, who, who's that, like that, they're, they're a You Lost Me story? Uh, that's what's pretty crazy is it's pretty universal, right? Like there's a sense of like all of us know someone, at least someone, and the, the numbers are pretty, pretty compelling of those who walk away, um, who either deconvert um, or who become, you know, who say, yeah, I'm still Christian, but they hardly ever go to church. They're very, very um, superficially Christian, uh, which is, I think, a bigger problem than those who actually have the courage to deconvert. Um, and so um, it's all about trying to help people meet someone who's different than them. So let me show you a few things that I think are kind of interesting. There's all sorts of places in Scripture that I think relate to how we think about social science and how it is that we try to understand someone else's perspective. Almost all the majors that you mentioned um, you know, is all about trying to think about what someone else is perceiving and how to then try to build a bridge between that, that set of perceptions and, and either reality or someone else's reality. That's what I'm ho- hoping you might take away from this talk today, is like, how will you be on mission with Jesus as a reconciler, as someone who builds a bridge between these perceptions and misperceptions, right? So number one, First um, Chronicles 12.32 is an amazing little verse where it talks about the tribe of Issachar. And uh, David becomes king of the whole, he, the, the nation of Israel is reunified. And, um, and there is a, in that reunification, each of the tribes are given a specific responsibility. So there's the warriors and there's the priests. What's the name of the priestly tribe? The Levites, right? 
Well, the tribe of Issachar, it's, it's the smallest of them. And it says there's 200 people who understood the times and knew what the people of God should do. It's a really cool little verse, right? Like It's like a, the sense of people who are trying to get a, get a bead on reality. Uh, so that's been a, a huge one for me as a kind of a mission statement. How about this one? Isaiah 43, 19. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Right? Like it's this really cool verse about God constantly at work bringing new things into the world. And I think that's another, that's for me what pro- probably my life verse is trying to help people perceive what God is up to in a new way. Um, how about Numbers uh, 13? Um, God likes research so much he named a whole book called Numbers. <laughs> I think that's important. Uh, Numbers 13 is really cool. Moses gives these instructions uh, to the spies. And you probably remember those, the, the, the uh, two spies that come back, uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph, Caleb and Joshua. And there's two of the 12 that have a, a minority report. Remember that? They, they, like, most of the guys are like, hey, these dudes are too big. They're too strong. We're going to get you know, killed. Uh, but, but Joshua and Caleb come back. But before that happens... Uh, this is uh, Numbers seventeen, Numbers 13, verse 17. Moses gave the men these instructions as he sent them out to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country and see what the land is like. So number one, that's the first question, right? Number two, find out whether the people are li- living or strong and weak, few or many. What kind of land they live in? Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected, unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Do, do your best to bring back samples of the crops that you see. And so that's like 10 questions, which is, the, I think, the first recorded market research study in the Bible. All right? And there's all sorts of other examples. If, uh, if you want to afterwards, I've, I can give you more, more biblical examples. Because here's what I'm trying to say. is I, We try to ground the reality of what we do in a biblical understanding of what it is that God has done throughout human history. How it is that he uses something like this to help us see what's happening, to perceive someone else's reality, and then to ground our reality in what that looks like. And then how do we trust God in it, right? This, is, this whole story um, is such a powerful one because you see that, that out of the market researchers that Moses sends out, two out of the 12 come back with a certain perspective that is like, yeah, God can work through us despite what the, the numbers look like, despite what the situation looks like. Um, they see the reality, and then they trust that God has a plan despite that. Um, but, but 10 out of the 12 are like, eh, let's, let's just close it down, man. No way this is going to work. So there's a whole lot of interesting things that I want you to understand. Like, it's not just seeing the data. It's also having confidence in what God wants you to do with the data, right? So that's an important principle that I've learned through the work we, we do. All right, so let's, uh, let's also talk about this in relation to the creation, fall, redemption, restoration uh, storyline. All right, so creation, how life ought to be, fall, how life is, redemption, how life can be, fall, how life will be. And so here are some things that I think about when I, when I, when I think about research um, specifically related to those things, right? So people want to tell the truth about themselves and their present condition. There's one, you all know the, um, the researcher... Um, uh, Brene Brown, do you know do you know her? She does a lot of qualitative work, right? And she, I heard a podcast with her, and she was talking about the fact that we can tell a lot about a person's point of view based on this one question, which is, do you believe that people get up every day trying to do their best? Think about that for a second. Do you believe that people get up every day trying to do their best? 
What do you think? Anybody think, answer affirmatively? How many answer negatively? That people don't try to do their best every day. Is that right? Well, that tells us a lot about the way people think, right? So, like, actually, that, that question, as Brene Brown says, it, it really tells us a lot about how we think about human nature, right? I actually think yes and no. I know I'm sort of cheating. But because of this, right, it's like I actually really believe most people get up every day and they really try to do their best. I actually really do believe that because I believe in the fundamental doctrine of creation that people are created in God's image. They are, they are um, every single person has innate dignity and worth, um, right? Like no matter your ability, disability, the color of your skin, you know, anything about you. Um, and this is something that I think the church really ha- has and when it's at its best. It says like, you know, people with Down syndrome, they have innate dignity and worth, you know, in certain countries now. Um, you're like you're 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 forced to or asked to abort babies uh, that have Down syndrome because we don't want to have to deal with that as a complication in our society. Well, Christianity says everyone has innate dignity and worth. Um, <clears throat> but I also think that people people's perceptions of themselves are flawed, and they often sort of they lean towards a self-preservation instinct. And I see this in the research all the time. So you know, people will often ask when I say, "Hey, well." Pers- the, Percentage of millennials who feel anxious. People are like, well, you know, you can't really trust millennials because they don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, and so, you know, this idea of like, it's actually both. We, we, we really do believe that people want to tell the truth about themselves, but they're also incapable on some level of being able to totally accurately say what's happening in their lives because why? It's like the, the reality of the fall. It's hard. It's hard to know exactly what's true, that our hearts are. Uh, are deceitful and we, we deceive ourselves, uh, but, but I also believe that people are really trying their best. Uh, people can be inspired by research and insights to see other people's perspectives, uh, and then that's the redemption, how life can be, um, and then also the, the oh, I didn't change that, that should be redemption, uh, restoration, sorry. Uh, people can come together to create a better world, so that should be restoration. I, I want to just, I'm so anal, I want to change that right now. I built that slide this morning, so... My fault. Okay, so practical considerations. Here's some things to think about practically. So, again, you guys had a ton of different like types of fields that you're interested in getting into. So let's break it down into something more practical. What are the ways that you could be thinking about using social science, using social research to get into this, right? So number one, ranges, this, the, the fields that you could get into range from academic to applied. So obviously you can be doing research um, across an academic s- setting, um, you know, there's a lot of really, really incredible academic research that's happening um, all the time. Um, I decided early on, or, or the trajectory of my life was, I wanted to do more applied work. I wanted to like make, I wanted to have a bigger, you know, I don't know, influence. I just, I just like, I really want to communicate. My dad's a pastor. He had a big church in Phoenix for like four or five thousand people um, every week that would come, and I always felt like it wasn't just about the numbers, but it's like if we can't make this practical, like, why are we doing this? So I was more inclined towards applied research. So, you know, I'm, I'm a market researcher, a social researcher, and we, like I said, we will be hired by organizations to try to understand, like, we got hired last year to do research for the Gates Foundation to understand different tribes, different kind of 
um, um, faith tribes in America, and we were trying to help give the Gates Foundation language and a lens into understanding faith, faith as a motivation in our world. There's data analytics and quant and field work and qualitative. So, you know, there's kind of a spectrum from hard, hard data to more qual-oriented work and field work. So Brene Brown is more of a qual field, field work researcher. I'm a little bit more quant-oriented, although our company does, uh, does uh, uh, focus groups and other kinds of qualitative work. Does that make sense? Any questions about any of that? So, you know, I think there's tons of different places where you could use these sorts of skills, you know, writing for newspapers or media, um, media companies, uh, market research companies, um, data analytics, even investment, you know, firms, even in the area of sports. Who's doing sports? Yeah, so even in the area of sports, obviously, uh, there's tons of data around the performance on the field, but there's also, I think, a chance for us to use even more data around, like, what's a, a deeper story of what's happening in the lives of these athletes or their families, so research is, is such a powerful tool to be able to tell those deeper stories. Okay, <clears throat> um, here's some things to consider, again, practically. Uh, what kinds of things do you enjoy doing? So maybe if you're taking notes, you could, you could ask yourself this question. What kinds of things do you enjoy doing? Um, and, then, and then think a little bit about functionally how you're motivated related to that, right? So if you enjoy analysis and insights, what's most important and so what? That's really the analytical instinct. Um, that's a great place to get into, right? Maybe you're interested in writing or journalism and the expression of those ideas um, and, um, you know, how to communicate this so people will listen. Um, design or infographics, how to get people behind the cerebral cognitive lens. This is one of my philosophies of research is that um, I can't just help people think their way through things. I have to help them feel their way through things, right? So research bounces off people's people's um, helmets. Here's, here's a little secret. Um, uh, you, you, remember, you all know to- Toy Story and Buzz Lightyear. When I speak in front of an audience, especially older adults or a group of industry experts, um, I often think about like walking up to them, excuse me, and thinking about like the little button that's going to help that space helmet go back. So what is it that I can do to say to them that will help them, because I have this, this idea of facts bounce off people's frames. It bounces off their space helmets. They're like listening for facts that confirm what they already believe. But that's something I imagine, not every single time I speak, but I think about what will I use to help get behind. Like here's some facts, here's a compelling argument that's logical, that's fact-based, that's evidence-based, but also what are some things I can do to help you understand and care about this issue um, that is different than maybe you would have expected. How can I get beneath that? So this idea of design or infographics or storytelling or emotions, how do we get behind that cerebral and cognitive perspective? It's a both and. We, we obviously need to appeal to the cerebral cognitive side, <clears throat> but people don't make decisions based on facts alone, do they? They often make decisions, and most importantly, make decisions uh, uh, through emotions. We're uh, ir- irrash- ir- irrational that way. Um, about presentation or consulting, um, you know, do you like working with organizations to, to help them change? Um, that's a, a you know an area that I think is 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 really important as you gain you know skills and abilities to be able to walk in and say, okay, we're going to help walk you through uh, what we learned in the research, and then we're going to go through a process with you so you can you can come to a different understanding of what is 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 right for your organization. Uh, I'm going to come back to this technical versus adaptive change later if we have some time. All right, so what questions do you have about any of that? Any, anything you're curious about? Yeah. Which one do you think you fall under the 
Well, I think my my journey as a researcher has been kind of going through the different stages of this. So I had to start working for like 10 years, just doing analysis and working on hundreds and hundreds of studies. We've interviewed more than a million and a half people uh, in my 20 years. And then I started becoming a better writer. I remember about year seven when I finally wrote an article that George Barna was like, great, I don't have to edit this. But it took seven freaking years before he didn't do that. Um, and then uh, the design and infographics have been something I've been working on the last six or seven years, trying to build more of that into our team. I'm not naturally as good at that. I'm more of a cognitive kind of guy. But I've realized I've had to put other people around us to build a team that can do more of that. I'm going to show you some of our infographics in a minute. Uh, and, then, and then I've gotten better and better at the presenting and consulting. And I, I think I, that's, that's the place where I want to do more and more with my life the next 10 years. Yeah. Man, that is such a good question. You say that louder for everybody. Um, <laughs> how do you how do you know like the difference between um, what you enjoy doing, what you're good at doing, and what God wants you to do? Yeah. So first of all, I think the idea of what God wants you to do is, be- is that's such a big question that I think we have to answer that through the lens of the first two things you just asked, right? What do you enjoy doing, and what are you good at? Um, it's funny because in working with this company for 25 years, again, I didn't expect that. It's such an it's such a outlier to work for one company for so long. Um, but for about 10 years, I kept asking Jill, my wife, like, what am I good at, honey? I feel like I'm not good at any of these things. Um, and then about two or three years ago, I realized that I didn't, I wasn't asking that question anymore. Um, and I think it's because I was it turns out you're not, all, you're, you're not really that good at many things as a 20-something. And I want to say that really, really cautiously and humbly. I don't mean that you can't be good at anything. But there is this sense in which there is this, like, you're not, you're, you're, your taste, what you think will be really good, what other people think is good around you, it takes 10 years. It takes time to develop a certain set of skills um, and so I think what you're good at, we shouldn't be misled by that too easily. Like I told you, I, I thought for sure I'm never going to be a writer because George Barnum just, he would take, uh, he would take his red pen and I would, we would always, you know, we'd print it out and, you know, it'd just be like, he would bleed on that thing. And I, I mean, every page, I mean, if it ha- if it had fewer than 10 marks, I was like, wow, that's, I, there's hardly any changes on that page. But usually he would rewrite sentences, and then he would like, hey, and then he would, and then at the very end, he would have these questions like, you know, I think you might be missing this, this, and this. Have you thought about this? And like, oh, man, I got to like, I want to be done with this dumb thing. (laughs) You know, like even like making the edits is easier than like those penetrating questions at the end. So I think this question of what are you good at, we sh- you know, I think we should be led mostly by the things we really feel passionate about and the things that we feel called to do, and then just give yourself patience in the development of those areas. Um, so, because, like I said, it took seven years. I remember, I remember like six or what, it was like the second to last article that I wrote where he bled all over it again, and I was like, man, I got to be smart in this. Why is it that I can't figure out the formula to writing this story in a way that could go on our website? And so when I approached that, that one that finally felt like a breakthrough, I was like, okay, i got to figure out a different thing. And I remember just sitting in like with a kind of a blank page, taking all these six, seven years of work, all the things I've been learning, <clears throat> and then like, okay, throw all that stuff out. Don't ignore it, but like, how could I do this from, from scratch? 
And I remember it was like people use, Americans use technologies to bring control to their lives. That was like my headline. And I analyzed the data with a frame of reference towards not just like, hey, we're using, te- you know, we're not just using DVDs and, and, you know, these technologies. It wasn't just like X percent of Americans do this. It was like, I want to try to story. I try to figure out a way, like an angle. And, um, and so he's like, this is great. This is what we've been looking for. And so it took six and a half years of like just being beat down <laughs> to be able to figure some of that out. So that's another principle, though, is like figure out someone in your life or some process where the, what you enjoy doing and you have to just like be willing to get beat up by someone who's really good at something in order to keep growing in that. So, yeah. I, I was just thinking as a CCO staff person, uh, one of my jobs would be to try to speak into somebody uh, from the perspective of their identity and then uh, help them to help to assist them as they're trying to look vocationally as to who they are. Yep. I think that's right. And I think... Um, Trying to decouple, this is a hard one, guys, but decouple your identity from, you know, from your deepest identity of who you are in Christ and really who you are as a person from you know, what, it, what you do or how successful you are at it. Uh, it's really, really hard, and there's lots to say about, about that. But, um, yeah, anyway, I think that's, that's part of what, as a, as a staff person for CCO, uh, you know, you know, a good mentor is going to, is going to push you hard where you really are facing like, is my identity and what I think I do really well, or is it, or is it something else? Um, you know, it's, it's okay to really feel pushed that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the reason, I mean, again, I, I don't want to have any any sideways, anything I say towards academics, like sideways, because I don't, I don't think badly of academic work, but that was part of the reason why I feel like the Lord called me into more applied research. Um, and so, you know, we've had a chance to talk to organizations on real specific business issues or, or ministry issues. So years ago, um, during, during the heyday of... Um, uh, music piracy. Uh, the Christian Music Trade Association hired us because they couldn't. They were really frustrated by Christian teenagers also ripping and burning music, and so they they wanted to understand Christian teenagers' perspectives towards music piracy, and they even wanted us to like measure different taglines that might help to reduce the level of Christian teens stealing music. Right. So they they wanted us to test like Thou shalt not steal. If you saw this on a on an advertisement, would you would that make you less likely to, to steal music? The, the, the tagline that did win was millions of wrongs don't make a right. I thought it was clever enough and all that. But what we learned in that study was really interesting was that the mindset of young people was that this was a, this was a fundamental sea change in how music was being distributed, that they, they saw through some of the, 
the issues and challenges of like you're making us buy music we don't really want um, in a, in a CD packaging. You know, you're make, you're charging us 15 bucks for one song. You know that we really want, and um, and so I remember like going into that that board meeting and like delivering the truth of okay guys the problem is that the the, the generation doesn't see this they see it as a sharing economy. Uh, I didn't use that phrase at that time, but like they see it very differently than you see it. So here's the things that we you want to understand. This is the technical versus adaptive thing I was going to hear, right? So technical, they want to like what's the tagline that can provide us a technical solution to something like music piracy? So technical problems are things like you know you break a bone, you go to see the orthopedic doctor, doctor, you get the cast, and when you're done, here's the key: it's you're as good as new. You don't have to think about it again. But adaptive is Oh crap! We got to change our whole way of life. That's like maybe diabetes or you know some other kind of like chronic health issue. Like we can't just do the same thing that we've always done. And so this was a great example of a time when we came into a meeting and it's like they wanted a technical solution. Like what's the tagline? What's the messaging? How do we like keep our industry like save our bacon? And yet what we delivered was hey, here's some technical solutions, but I, I'm going to encourage you to think adaptively about this. They didn't do it. And they were a trade association. It was not the place where they really probably had the leverage on the music companies that they needed to have. Uh, but that's what I think was a, that's a fun little story of where we had to like kind of courageously come into an environment and give that kind of news. And, I, and so that's an example where they ignored the data um, and they had lots of reasons why they didn't want to, um, to, to listen to it. But then I've also had lots of experiences where in writing for Christian leaders or churches where I see, you know, people tell me all the time how, like, wow, you know, your book on Christian or the books that we've written have changed the way we think about ministry, and that's a real privilege. So I think that's what's that's fun about research and publishing and, you know, working on stuff that really matters to people. Any other questions? Yeah. Totally. I mean, you, you, you've heard that Mark Twain uh, quote. I might butcher it here, but it's like there's liars, cheaters, and damn statistics, or something like that, right? Or uh, this idea that this, you know that uh, you can make statistics say anything you want. And I, I've seen the impact of that. I know how to ask certain questions that get certain results. And you can see in like the political environment, it's called push polling. It's like you know, would you would you vote for Donald Trump, or would you rather have you know, a liberal socialist who's going to ruin America in the president, you know, in the presidency. It's like, uh, well, that's not really a fair question. <clears throat> um, but there's all sorts of ways you learn about how to ask the fairest question possible. And, and there's all sorts of interesting tools and, and techniques we use. For example, you don't ask people what, you think that, what they think they will do. You ask them what they have done in the last 30 days because people, the hypothetical is harder for people to answer than what have you actually gone and done. Um, you try not to get, um, you can ask, sometimes ask people about what they think other people might think about a situation rather than simply saying, what do you think about it? So we just have a stu- it's actually on the homepage of Barna.com right now, uh, a study about whether people feel that others that they know are worn out of their current church experience. And half of Americans said they believe that other Christians they know are worn out on their current church experience 
which is another way of like kind of deflecting the personalization because nobody wants to complain about their church, so it's an easy, easier way for us to get. So we learn all these different inter- interesting tools to try to get uh, behind people's you know sort of sort of natural defense mechanisms. But that's one of the fun things is like learning how to how to ask the right questions. Um, it's still there's always like shades of shades of perception, but it's but it's an interesting way to do it. Any other questions? All right, cool. Um, so let's let's. I'm going to show you this case study of um, something we did with World Vision called the Connected Generation, and uh, it's a study of, of 15,000. Here's the report, and then the U.S. Country Report. It was a study of 15,000 um, 18 to 35 year olds around the world, and so it was such a privilege for us. Um, I've studied. You know, millennials and Gen Z in the United, in the United States for more than more than twelve years, um, but you can see the sample sizes that we had in all these different in all these different countries, and it's been amazing to begin to see the global culture that's happening in your generation. So, young adults in this generation are more similar to other young adults than they are to older adults in their own country. So, you know, like a uh, a young person in Singapore. Uh, is very similar to a young person in in, um, in Australia. Um, there's a lot of similarities in their perspectives, and I think it's because of technology and like global entertainment and social media. Like we, the world feels smaller. Uh, let me give you some examples of what we we found. One thing was interesting was this like lo- the loneliness epidemic is really profound. Like a lot of young people around the world. Um, like here in the United States, you know, do you feel deeply cared for by those around you, 36%, or do you feel lonely and isolated? And then there, this, these are two separate questions, but you know, we're showing you the data on both. But in America, um, young adults, a third, feel lo- say, say they feel lonely and isolated. Um, only one in three said that they feel deeply cared for by those around them. Um, here's some of the. Diff- I'm going to show, show some of this stuff tomorrow morning because um, I'm doing the talk on restoration. Um, but you can see... Here's some positive emotions, feeling deeply cared for. Um, someone believes in me, satisfied with my life choices, secure in who I am, optimistic about the future, able to accomplish my goals. Um, you know, here we are in the United States, a very affluent you know country, very a lot of opportunities in many ways for young adults. And look at there's not, we're not necessarily much better in any of these. All these are within the range of sampling error. How about then the negative ones? And look how all of a sudden the U.S. Is, is higher on all these. Uncertain about the future, unable to do what I want, pressure to be successful, a need to be perfect, judged by older generations, pressured by my parents' expectations, um, anxious about important decisions, insecure in who I am, afraid to fail, sad or depressed, uh, lonely and isolated, not enough opportunities for me. So just that's an amazing like like profile of people... And again, remember that creation fall stuff we were talking about. I believe that people are very, doing their very best to tell us the truth about themselves. I mean, sometimes we actually have a whole thing. And when you analyze online data, it's called straight lining. So we use these online panels. And straight liners, what do you imagine they might do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. On the little buttons, it's like they're like, Agree strongly, agree strongly, agree strongly, agree strongly, agree strongly, or whatever. So we dump their data, right? So we actually, and we have speed checks in the online surveys. So like if you get to the, the question 20 and you've done it in 17 seconds, you're out, right? 
So, um, so we have different speed checks and different things because we know, again, the falls, there's going to be some cheaters in here, right? Uh, so we clean the data, make sure we do our very best. But then when you find a set of data that's close to what you, you, you've got a group of 1,000 respondents or 15,000 respondents you feel comfortable with, then you start analyzing their data. But this is an incredible like, emotional profile of this generation. So here's the conclusion. Well, I'm going to show you this, and then I'll show you the conclusion. So check it out. We have a, 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 a way of looking at anxiety. That means you're often dealing with these emotions, anxious, sad or depressed, insecure, and then afraid to fail. One in five young adults around the world is battling anxiety, but in the United States, the proportion is three in 10. I mean, all the resources and tools and other stuff. So, you know, this generation, your generation, is dealing with mental health issues um, and talking about anxiety. And I think that's both a really, like, it's a, it's a public health crisis. It's also a great opportunity for the church because people are talking about the things that matter most to them. And so the conclusion we came to in this was that the generation needs an emotionally connected church. An emotionally connected church. I don't even have all the answers as to what that is and what that isn't. Um, I actually need help from people like you, from your generation, to help the church understand what would that look like. So an example, we, have, uh, we did an interview with a young person who walked away from her church. She, um, she became a prodigal, someone who, who's no longer a Christian. And we asked her about her church experiences in a focus group. And we said, what about the, the youth group leader, the youth pastor? And, and she said, that, that guy was paid to be my friend. That's part of his job description. Paid to be my friend. That hurts, man. But we've got to listen to that because that means that we have to understand. And that's just like the tip of an iceberg about a generation that feels the professionalization of ministry. And like, you know, you guys see us as like marketing targets to try to help grow your youth group. And this, you know, you guys know it, you feel it. Like, uh, there's a lot of cynicism. I think, I, think, I think there's a sense in which, you know, if you're really, really earnest, if you really, really try hard, it's like, what's, what are you hiding? What's, like, what's wrong with you? Um, so you guys, I mean, this, I don't have solutions to this. I'm inviting you to think alongside us as I show you this. This is the kind of stuff that, like, I'm trying to wake up the church to deal with these kinds of complicated questions. Another, another thing we concluded from a lot of research I've been doing um, at, at, at the last, I don't know, the number of years, is I've been concluding that your generation, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong about this, but you don't want to just know that Christianity is true, like apologetically true. You also want to know that Christianity is good, that it's good for your relationships, that it's good for your communities, that it's good for mental health, that it's good for, you know, our LGBTQ, you know, friends. And it's like that we, we really want to understand that Christianity isn't just true propositionally, but that it's also a good thing. It's, it, 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 it brings out the very best in, in, in human understanding and human, uh, human societies. Um, so that's a, just a case study of one study that we've been working on uh, that I thought uh, might be helpful um, called, called The Connected Generation. You can actually see more about that at theconnectedgeneration.com, theconnectedgeneration.com, if you're interested. Um, by the way, I don't, I don't mind doing this. If you guys want, I'll send you a digital copy of that report um, for free. It's, it's just digital, but it's uh, just email me at, um, I don't mind you emailing me, just dkinneman at barna.org, dkinneman at barna.org. If you want, I'll send you, it's about a 140-page report, so it's a lot of data. dkinneman at barna.org. Didn't plan on doing that, but I hope, it, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, personal considerations. So, thing like... Uh, Confirmation bias, people tend to accept research that confirms their existing views. 
So we've got to work harder to get the right kind of insights that reframes people's expectations. This is something we were just talking about, right? Like sort of the idea of like how we ask questions or if you ask things in a way that everyone expects, like you know, the way church attendance is reported is have you attended church in the last seven days? It's a fine question. Gallup has been doing that for years and years and years. But there's probably better and, and more sophisticated ways of really understanding people's relationship to churches. Uh, like we're finding that nearly half of millennials say they use technology like podcasts or video sermons or other things to replace their church attendance. So, you know, that, that's a different, like they may still be in church once in a while, but they're, they're using replacement sort of like they're, they're time shifting, they're worship shifting, just like they time shift viewing from, you know, waiting on Thursday night to watch a certain program. You guys didn't know that, but that's what we used to do. Uh, we used to have to wait until the program was up on Thursday night, right? Um, okay, and then seeing the whole, we always want to help people, including ourselves, to see the whole picture. It's harder than you can imagine because we only see in part, that's another uh, scriptural reference, uh, one of my big fears in life is now doing this for 25 years that I become like a, um, incapable of seeing new insights because I, I, I've already developed my own confirmation bias, having tons of access to research. So I'm always asking the Holy Spirit, like, give me new insights as to what fresh insights on this data. I mean, I'm a so-called expert, but man, like, help me to get past my own blinders so I can really see what it is you want me to see in this. And that's, that's hard because sometimes it's like, you know, how do you, how do you take all the things, is very similar to that story I told you of six years in, how do I take everything that I've learned, kind of crumple it up, throw it in the trash can, but keep the best parts of the skills I had been learning at that, <clears throat> at that stage. Um, and, you know, how do you, how do you think about that? So, you know, it's, it's, it's harder than you can imagine because the more you get, you know, good at coming to insights, the more you're like, okay, I know how to do this. It's like, just, just give it to me, coach. You know, like, I'll do it. Yeah. So are most of the people you work with um, believers? At our company, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, because I think a lot of my questions, so she and I, like, kind of study some of the things we go to the same school, and, like, some of the things we've talked about a lot um, is, like, just the difficulty of being, like, the only Christian in social science spaces, because, like, I think the question of compromise confirmation bias comes it it doesn't come up but it's just like very prevalent yeah i understand like you know we look at issues and we look at injustice and like the things we're studying we see like the need for god but like the people who are around us look at us and say like no god is the problem like this is the way that you know colonialization like all this stuff just as related to what we personally study but yeah i guess like my question is just like how you I don't know if you ever have any, I'm sure that the people, the companies that you're, the organizations that your your organization is working with, um, you're working with unbelievers a lot, but just like how you like navigate that, just the fact that like being in the social sciences means that the question of humanity, which is a question that is integral to understanding the gospel, um, cannot be avoided. So like how do you... That is a great question. Um, so, you know, my daughter is a, uh, is at Berkeley. She's a RA, and um, I'm so proud of her. She's an editor, editor in chief of a, a student journal there called uh, Tog to an Unknown God. Are you on? Uh, do, do you do a student well, journal? We have one at Cornell called Claritas, and so like at the yeah. Office, yeah. Oh yeah, did, my daughter was there. Yeah, their design is like amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's sweet. Um, so I'm so proud of her because I feel like she. Um, if I had to do it again, I don't know that I would want to work at an explicitly Christian company for some of the reasons that you're asking, is that 
Now, I love our job. I love our work. We will always have this sort of like, we help Christian leaders understand the times, know what to do. But I'm proud of you. I'm proud of, I mean, it, that working through those deep questions of how do you translate? How do you, how do you, when, when do you speak up for a, 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 a perspective that comes from this creation, fall, redemption, restoration story, but to do so in language that's sophisticated enough that has traction. Um, you know, my daughter and I talk a lot about, you know, how, how, like being the only white girl in her RA cohort and how like, like her experiences, like she's learning the language and trying to understand and, 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 you know, like I, I'm so proud of her and, pr- and proud of people that are able to do that. Um, I think the best story in scripture is Daniel's story. And to, to, to read it and study and immerse yourself in that. That's the Faith for Exiles premise that I wrote about in this book, Faith for Exiles. Is like, what does it look like? And I, I can only observe it because I think about it and write about it. But I don't, I, I kind of do when I go into like Sony or DreamWorks or one of the other companies. And I'm like, you know, they're like, who are you? You're a Christian? And I'm like, no, I'm just a Christian researcher. I research Christian things, right? But uh, trying to translate, that's one of the fun things about being a researcher is you can say, okay, well, here's the way we ask the question. Here's what we think is important. Here's how you, tr- how you should apply that. Um, but it's a both and. I think there's, like, for, there's roles for companies like Barna that are quite explicitly oriented towards serving Christian organizations. And there's roles then for people that, that want to work within these structures and systems and institutions to try to bring about change in a Christian imagination. But it's, a, it's, a, it's hard work because you've got to translate all the time. Um, in Daniel's story, we learn that for three years, he learns the language and literature of Babylon. Uh, he and his peers take on Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, Belteshazzar. Uh, you heard Andy talk about Marduk um, last night. And like all these, they were reprogrammed, these, these Hebrew young men were reprogrammed to think and act and behave Babylon, in a Babylonian fashion, right? We're going to make you eat our diet. And that was the first time where Daniel says, hey, could we try a different thing here? And he negotiates with his with his captors. He's like, let's, you know, test us for two weeks and see if the diet that we choose is any worse off. And so Daniel's story is a very profound one of that kind of negotiation in a, in a context where it's very, very complicated and, and translating that and, and having these private practices of prayer where the Lord himself shows up and reveals truth about how to do that. So it's not just how smart you are or how, um, you know, uh, how how cl- how clever you are in translating, but just like Lord, today open me up to how it is that I can be on mission with you to translate the things that are the most important to your heart into this work that I'm doing, and I think that that kind of like daily principle you see you see his prayer life at the beginning of his life when he's for the three years of captivity or three years where he's learning the language and literature of Babylon you see that openness to the leading of the Spirit. Uh, when he goes in to translate the king's dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, um, because he's like, you know, God, show me what it is you want to tell Nebuchadnezzar. Um, uh, and then at the very end of his life, when he's, you know, th- nearly thrown in the, ba- in, the, in the lion's den, but this sort of daily rhythm of, 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 you know, sort of spiritual insight is how he's actually able to pursue that faithfulness. So I hope that's helpful. Um, cool, let's see. Was I going to show you anything else? Oh, yeah, I was going to show you one more slide here. What do with my? Here it is, my clicker. All right, so here's some things to consider. These would be my bits of advice for you all, <clears throat> um, just offered humbly because you know the Lord's going to work in your lives. 
I tell this to my daughter, Emily and Annika, because um, she's always like, man, what am I going to do? I don't know. You know, she's like, she feels a lot of pressure to, su- to succeed. I see some of the, the data that I just showed you, you know, when I talk to her of just this sense of pressure. I'm like, honey, I don't, I'm not putting pressure on you. You know, it's like there's this, this you guys have this, as a generation, this sense of like, you got to go out and kill it in the first, you know, the first month out of school. Well, it's okay. God is sovereign. He, he, this is Dan, one of Daniel's things. In Daniel 4, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, uh, O king, the Lord is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whom he wishes. The Lord is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whom he wishes. So it, we can just trust in that sovereignty. I should have put that as number one, I suppose. But number one, read widely. Um, and what I mean by widely is widely, like a lot of different sources, right? And then read a lot. Read a lot of volume. Um, I would suggest subscribing to a few periodicals every year, trying out some new things. So for a long time, I was a subscriber to Rolling Stone, <laughs> which was just a really cool magazine to understand a different perspective than, than what I was used to or, or raised with, right? But both music, um, entertainment, um, you know, a, a more liberal perspective than, than, I, than I grew up with. But understanding, like, you know, just, just a, a sort of faith is written about once in a while in there. So I haven't, I haven't read that in a long time. But for about five, six years, um, I subscribed to Rolling Stone. It was kind of funny because my wife would sometimes rip off the cover when she's like, okay, now you can read it. Because <laughs> uh, there were sometimes some scantily clad people on the cover. Um, all right. Uh, but, but, like, right now I uh, subscribe to The Economist. And The Economist is a great magazine about sort of global affairs. I love the, the fact that they have, uh, there's no bylines in The Economist except for one, one or two columnists. Uh, so that's, in, that's influenced the way I think about Barna. We don't typically do bylines in our work because I think about the work of our company as having a voice, not necessarily individual voices. Now other, other journalistic outlets will do more bylines, but that's more of the common rule. Um, but you know, I've subscribed to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine. Uh, and Monocle, uh, and uh, Foreign Affairs, and, you know, just a, The Economist, and just a ton of different magazines through the years, uh, Relevant Magazine, Christianity Today, and, and, and I think that periodicals are actually really great tools to think about how data and stories and, like, t- you know, what's happening, it kind of gives you a steady diet. Now, I don't read them page, you know, cover to cover, but it gives me, I flip through them, and I think about design and content and organization and, and how, how, you know, how to, how to tell the most important story. So that's a, that's a principle I think you should do throughout your life. Don't continue to subscribe to anything you don't find essential. Um, so, you know, sometimes just like take it for a year. It's cool, right? Just figure out what you like about that. That's actually how I met, um, in a, in an indirect way, Andy Crouch. He had a thing called, uh, uh, some of you might remember this, something quarterly, regeneration quarterly. And that was uh, how I first came into like understanding. See you guys. Sorry. No, that's all right. It was something I'm said. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so that's how I first like. Oh wow, Andy Crouch is a cool person. I would like to meet someday. And that's so just like getting exposed to lots of different like people and, and perspectives. You know, it costs you a little bit of money, uh, but you know, just budget in a couple hundred bucks a year or whatever it is. To just try different periodicals and and then just but just cycle through them right like go to a Barnes and Noble, and and like I, even even from a, a perspective of um, um, layout design, like copywriting, um, you know just just 
pull some stuff up. I, I, I apply to some architectural digest for a while. Um, just just be interested and curious in a lot of different things. You see that's number number six. Meet a lot of people and ask questions. Um, be persistent in your career. This is that six-year story that I was telling you, right? Like, don't quit too soon. I mean, sometimes it's like it's obvious you got to move on. Uh, or, you know, unfortunately, there's, there's a lot of p- precarious work today. So uh, your generation faces uh, a very different kind of future than, than I think we did even 25 years ago. It's, it's just more precarious work. And so that sucks. Um, but the Lord's going to be with you. He's sovereign even still. But don't quit too soon. Um, if you think you got a boss that is, is you know, not what you, what you imagine that boss should be, like that's pro- the Lord's probably shaping you more than you realize through that kind of like constant pressure of not be feeling recognition or not understanding or whatever. Like just, just stick it out. Uh, again, there's obviously times when that is not the case. But layer, layer your experience, expertise and experience, building skill upon skill. So to me, that's so important. Like, you know, I, when I first started working at, at Barna Group, like I did a lot of desktop publishing of like laying, doing layout of, little brochures and pulling in, you know, different, like learn, learning how to like literally stack images and do different things. And I had fun with that. I remember George Barnes like, what are you doing, man? We'll just, it looks fine. Just ship it. And I was like, no, no, I really want to get this to look great. And um, some of that has helped me now, even though I don't do a lot of the design, my, very much of the design, you know, sometimes I'm working on PowerPoint slides or different things. And I'm like, I've got enough capabilities there to be able to like, you know, do some of my own work. I don't have to like wait for a designer to design a, a PowerPoint slide for me. And uh, so just layer skill upon skill. So anyway, that's another, another principle. So any other questions that I can answer for you guys? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of good data. There's a book called uh, The Shallows about how you know, social media does make us a sh- shallower thinker. Um, I'm sure Byron has it down there because I bought it from Byron about 10 years ago. Um, and um, uh, I think it's, I mean, I use Twitter as a great place. I follow all sorts of different, I have like 245 accounts that I follow. Um, some people, some, some news outlets, et cetera. And I do find that to be a very effective way of seeing books that I might want to read or articles that I might want to read, but it is hard to follow up. I don't personally have a good, you know, process of when I come across an article. I mean, some, I, it turns you into a skimmer and that's okay because uh, like just getting a sense of what are the current controversies or issues or challenges, but then to also couple that with, with that's why I th- I'm a big fan of periodicals uh, because you do, it does force a certain kind of reading that's different than book reading or social media scrolling. Uh, but it's it's all three of those things. Like so, the top layer should be you know so, um, well. The bottom layer is our reading of scripture, our reading of books, uh, our reading of classic you know literature. I've been going back through Lord of the Rings, and just this last I'm I'm almost done. It, it does bog down in a few places, um, but I'm almost done. But like these you know, reading classic literature, reading periodicals, doing a social social media scroll, all that can fit into a really healthy diet of information and, and content. And this is the I guess the biggest principle that I would have for you guys is is you know y- your brain and your heart are the things God's given you to cultivate, right? And if you can know a wide range of things about a big set of topics you're interested in and then keep focusing in on specific topics or specific skills that you're going to really excel at 
Um, that's the, the Lord, you're, you're faithful over your cognitive and emotional calling to be people of Issachar. And, and that, that sort of stack, you know, from social media to deep reading, all that stuff is really important to cultivating that kind of Issachar type mentality. Um, let me pray for you guys. Thank you for hanging in. Uh, Lord, thank you for Jubilee, for the work of CCO. Thank you for uh, this beautiful day, uh, this beautiful setting. As we walk out, we see uh, the river that's been here for, for centuries, and then we see the city that's been here for, for, for many, many years, and just the people, the creation that you have given us to cultivate, Lord. Um, I, I, I want to ask you, Lord, to help give this perspective to my friends and remind me, even as a, a middle, middle-aged guy, that you give us our brains, our hearts, our emotions, our very lives to be stewards of. And we ask you, Lord, to make us good stewards, to become the people of Issachar that you want us to be, to be courageous, uh, to be truth-tellers, to be driven by your, your word and your spirit, just like Daniel was, to learn the language and literature of Babylon, uh, but also then to be faithful in, in, in how it is that we live that out. Lord, we ask you for... Uh, that kind of um, that kind of revelation, not just of of the creation and of other people's perspectives, but of of what it is you're asking us to do, uh, of yourself, Lord, in Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks, everybody.